Please turn with me to Acts 8. We're continuing on in the book of Acts where we're seeing the kingdom of God spreading through the witness of the church. That's kind of the theme of the book of Acts. It goes back to kind of the thesis verse in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So chapters 1 through 7 we did a couple years ago. That kind of covers Jerusalem, and then we just launched back. I think this is the third week now, and it's starting to go forward more. So with the persecution of the church, Christians are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and they go about preaching the word. So we see this mission being accomplished, moving forward. And last week we saw Philip in Samaria, and many being filled with joy, many believing in the message, many being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. And so we're seeing the furthering of the kingdom in these like kind of concentric circles that you read about there. But it's not merely geographic. It's also expanding in scope, both ethnically and culturally. It started with Jews in Jerusalem. Those who, uh, then it spreads to kind of the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews who have adopted more of the Greek culture. Philip's one of those. He's one of the seven deacons who are all these Hellenistic Jews. Um, where the widows were being neglected in their, in their culture there and in the church. And so then we saw it expand to the Samaritans, which are even part remo- another part removed, that they're part Jewish. They're kind of mudbloods if you're a Harry Potter fan. Right? And the Jews don't really like them. But we saw last week when they received the gospel, the apostles come and they confirm that the gospel has indeed gone to the Samaritans that the Holy Spirit has descended upon them, that they are full participants in the church, that there's no difference. So now in our text, we get the second story of Philip, and what we're going to see is this continued expansion of the kingdom. And this week, it's not necessarily by numbers. So where so far all we've seen are these mass mass movements, many coming to believe and know. Um, What we see today is he just goes to one person. So it's not these numbers, but it's actually in diversity. So we're going to see that the good news of Jesus Christ is indeed for all people in all places. So here Acts 28, 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us um, glimpses of the way that you work in your world, of how your mission is carried forth. And we ask that you would help us this morning as we look at this passage. We ask that your spirit would enlighten it to our minds and hearts that we would know and see the truth of who you are and what you are doing, and that we would see ourselves in relation to it. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this story, and it just seems a little bit bizarre. Like if we skipped over this, what would we miss? It isn't mentioned again. The Bible doesn't pick up on the Ethiopian um, we assume Philip just settles in Caesarea after he gets there because he's mentioned in, in about 20 years later. In chapter 21, Paul stays at his house. But that's it. That's the end of his storyline. So why is this here? Some will take this passage and see it as a blueprint for personal evangelism, which makes sense. Philip's called the evangelist later, and there's this shift from the crowds in Caesarea to this one individual that he's sharing with here. And I think there are observations that we can make that absolutely apply to evangelism that can be helpful. Um, But I think if that's where we focus, we're missing the point and we're missing what actually is going on here. And I say that because the focus isn't actually on Philip. It's not really about what he does. It's much more on the Ethiopian. And so when we consider this passage in light of that, we're actually more amazed To see not how the gospel can go forward by sharing the gospel just right, but that there actually are no barriers to where God's grace can and does go. That the gospel is for all. That there is no such thing as an outsider that cannot be brought in. And so we'll see that it is God's intention to bring about this inclusion through the identification of and with the Savior. Those are kind of the three bullet points. Intention, inclusion, identification, if you take notes. And if you don't, they're still the points. Let's look first that it, and see that it is, in fact, God's intention. Beginning in verse 26. So now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. So Philip's been having this successful ministry in Samaria, right? Things are going well. People are receiving the gospel. The kingdom is growing. Things are great. The Holy Spirit's descending on these people. And an angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him to leave the towns, leave his successful ministry, and go to this country road on the way to the last watering hole before the desert. It's be like you're driving down the interstate. It's the uh, last exit for 400 miles. And our passage even says it's a desert place. 
doesn't sound good. So from towns and crowds to a desert, doesn't make logical sense, but he obeys. Then in verse 27, and there was an Ethiopian. In Greek, um, it's a little more shocking. And behold, an Ethiopian. We're on this empty road. You don't expect to see anyone. But here's a chariot. And someone from, who's not from around here. And what's he doing? Going home from worshiping God and reading the prophet Isaiah. So the Spirit says to him in verse 29, go over and join this chariot. So right from the get-go, it's clear that it's God's intention for this encounter to take place. An encounter that wouldn't make any sense. Right? That's, we'd say one in a million. But it's not. It's not chance. In reality, there's no such thing. It's so clear that the Lord is orchestrating all of it. But it's also not like he's just throwing them together and hoping it sticks. He's not just playing matchmaker and hoping they click, keeping his fingers crossed. No, he's been working far before this. He's been preparing Philip, right, through serving as a deacon, through the persecution and the dispersion, through spreading the gospel in Samaria, seeing that even if God's saving, if he's saving Samaritans, then why not an Ethiopian? And he's been preparing the Ethiopian as well. A foreigner who comes to worship Yahweh, who's reading Isaiah in his chariot. We love this clear direction, wouldn't we? A sign from God, angel to come and tell us. Now, if you're here and don't believe in Jesus or still wrestling with what you believe, I'm so glad you're here. You might think it's just chance. But I don't believe it's by accident. I think God has been working in this. You might not agree with me, but that's okay. I'd ask for you to at least give it a consideration. Listen to what you're hearing and think about it. What if it's not an accident? What if there really is a God who brought you here today to show you a little bit of himself? To tell you that he cares for you. And he is here for you if you only come to him. For others of us, we still like the idea of getting a sign, wouldn't we? I love that in most of my life. It would make things a lot easier. Especially in sharing the gospel. It would be a lot easier for me to know who I'm supposed to share with. If an angel sent me there. If I was so confident in the Spirit's leading that it's like he audibly tells me, then surely I'd obey then, right? Even me. And then when I go to the person, they just came from church, and they're reading their Bible. And like, who, who's the guy? Jesus. Uh, it's Jesus, right? Like softball. Just believe in him. That'd be great. It happens sometimes. But maybe some of you are waiting for signs like this before you'll talk about Jesus with your friends, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. If I'm honest, I do at times, right? I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be, I don't want to make things uncomfortable. I want people to want to hang out with me. Plus, they already know I'm a Christian. They know I'm a pastor. So if they want to know about God, they'll ask me, 
right? I'll take that as the sign. That'll be it. If they bring it up, then we'll talk. I want that. I want an easy in. Otherwise, how am I to know if God's calling me to this? If God intends for me to share? What if there are no chance encounters? What if God actually is orchestrating all of my encounters? That not only has he brought me to where I am, but he's also brought the other person there. And he doesn't make mistakes. We believe this. We call it providence. Right? There are no rogue atoms. There are no chance encounters. God is working in all of them. And the question for us is whether we will be faithful where he has us. God sent Philip to this Ethiopian. And he has put you in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your school, to be a faithful witness to Christ wherever you are. And we do this through our actions and our words. Right? It's not one or the other, false dichotomy, as we say. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll share the gospel with everyone you come across. I think it means you will share the gospel with some, and you should be open to sharing it with others, given opportunity. Seeking to be obedient to the Spirit's leading. Right, and this can sound really daunting to many of us, but it doesn't have to be. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to make sure that you have everything just right, that you say it perfectly. You don't have to save them. Jesus has to do that. And you're not Jesus. And that's good news. All he asks of you is to be faithful where he has you. Leave the results to him. And we want to help you, equip you in this too. So um, one of the things we've been planning for quite a while now, and working toward after Praxis and community groups and the May 3rd, I think, is last Wednesday there. The next four Wednesdays after that, we're going to actually have evangelism training here at the church. Um, I know it's super uncomfortable for a lot of us, and we don't want to step out in those areas, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we want to help you guys and help train you to do that. Because it's God's intention for his people to bear witness to his son. It's just how it is in the New Testament. That's what everyone does. So we've seen clearly here that without a doubt, God's intention for this encounter is to take place. So now let's see God's inclusion of an outsider. Now there's a lot here just in the description of a man. If you look at verse 27. So he's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So first, he's an Ethiopian. He's from what was then called Ethiopia. It's modern-day Sudan. And he's a treasurer over all the treasury, um, working for Candace. Candace is a title, not a name. So it's like Pharaoh or Caesar. It's the queen of Ethiopia. So this tells us that he is a well-respected and well-positioned black African. All right, so I'm preaching now to an almost exclusively white congregation within a vast majority white denomination, 
that has confessed our own history of racism. Back in 2016, we did that and are continuing to move forward in that. And I think one of the ways that we can kind of take the blinders off a little bit is simply to recognize the diversity of the church from the start as it comes up in the Bible, just seeing it, naming it. And what we see here is that Christianity, which began among people in the Middle East, right? Jesus is not a white, blue-eyed, long-haired, hippie-looking guy. He's most likely olive-skinned, probably brown eyes with dark brown or black hair, right? That's where it starts. But then Christianity goes to black Africa first, before it goes anywhere else outside of Israel. There were people all over at Pentecost, right? It says they were gathered there. But this is the first mention of it going out and being carried out. So there is no ethnic barrier. There is no prize, skin color, or culture. It's for people of all colors, of all cultures, all of us, of equal dignity, value, and worth, created in the image of God together. And we need to remember that. We need to keep that in mind. It's also important to recognize what Luke is doing here. So Ethiopia at the time was referred to in antiquity as the ends of the earth. So as we've seen the gospel go out in kind of those circles from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria into the ends of the earth, right? Um, Now we're actually getting a foretaste, a little bit of a fulfillment of that. Right here. And that's kind of what the rest of the book is about as Paul goes on in his missionary journeys. So we're seeing that fulfillment going forward. And while that's really important in the book of Acts and seeing the mission going forward, what's really interesting here is that that isn't what Luke focuses on. He doesn't keep referring to him as the Ethiopian. Right? Instead, what does he call him over and over? A eunuch. It's mentioned five times in our passage. And I think that's the key to actually understanding what's really going on here and why this is included and why it's important. So why is that? Eunuchs, they're men who have been emasculated. They could not join the assembly of God's people. See that in uh, Deuteronomy 23. They can't join the congregation in worship. He could never go past the court of the Gentiles never fully able to participate in Jewish religious life, always an outsider, always on the fringes. Despite the fact that if we look at him, he's what the Bible would probably call a God-fearer. He believes in Yahweh. Right? He travels 1,500 miles by oxen to come worship him in Jerusalem. He spends the journey reading the prophets So he's not quite a Gentile anymore, right? That's not even mentioned here or emphasized where it is in chapter 10 with Cornelius. Not quite a Gentile, but he can never become a Jew. Not because he doesn't want to, but because he can't. He's excluded. There's something stopping him. Something is preventing him. But it seems as though he holds fast to God's promises, He's not bitter and angry about it. He holds on to what God says he will do. And he's reading Isaiah, so I think it's safe to assume that he's aware 
of what's going to come up three chapters from where he's reading right now in Isaiah 56. It says this in verses 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. They'll have something better than sons and daughters, which is a blessing they can't have. It will be given in God's house, a place where they currently can't go. They will be given an everlasting name that will not be cut off. They will finally be fully included. Praise God. But when? The eunuch isn't seeing that now. He just, he just left Jerusalem where he came to worship all the while experiencing this sense of exclusion. And maybe that's how you feel this morning. You come here to worship God. You understand, at least in your mind, the goodness, beauty, and truth of the gospel. And yet there's something that tells you you're defective. That tells you that God probably loves them and maybe he even loves me, but not all the way. Still on the outside. Or the shame of your sin is too deep. Or being sinned against has damaged you too much. And you look around and see a bunch of put together people and say, that's not me. If you knew what I was hiding, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. But here's the thing. None of us has it together. Not really. I sure don't. If that's what I've communicated to you or how I've presented myself, I'm sorry. It's not true. I need God's mercy and grace every single day. All of us do. If we're honest, None is too far gone. There is nothing in your life that is beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. That goes for all of you in this room that might be wrestling with that or believing those lies. And it also goes for those outside the church, those God has put in our paths. Right? I do this sometimes in my own mind, but if we're hesitant to share with someone because we think they're a lost cause, we think that they're too far gone, they can really get it. It doesn't actually say anything about them. It actually says something about us. It shows that we don't really understand what we've been forgiven. 
And if we don't understand what we've been forgiven, then we don't actually understand how much God loves us. That he could include someone like us. That's what you see with Paul, the chief of sinners. So we see that God's intention to come to this eunuch. And we've heard the promise of God's inclusion, but how can it happen? This comes down to the identification of and with the suffering servant. In verse 30, Philip hears the eunuch reading Isaiah. They just read out loud at that time, so it's not weird, right? They don't read quietly. They read out loud. He hears him reading. And he asks him if he understands. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? So Philip joins him. And the passage that he's reading is part of a servant song from Isaiah about the servant of Israel. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And notice what the eunuch asks in verse 34. He doesn't ask for a detailed explanation of what this means or exactly how it plays out. He asks, who is the prophet talking about? He says, identify the servant. To us who have been in the church, this might seem obvious kind of 2,000 years after the crucifixion. But that's the real question if the idea of a suffering and humble Messiah has never crossed your mind. And it wouldn't have. So then Philip opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, tells him the good news about Jesus. It's about Jesus. He's the sheep. It was led to the slaughter. He's the lamb who didn't open his mouth. He's the one who was humiliated. The one who was denied justice. Whose life was taken away. The verses just before this. Are our assurance of pardon. We do that on purpose by the way. We plan it so that it fits together. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. We've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. We are made for God. He created us for himself. And yet we've rejected him. We've rejected his rule and reign in our lives. What we call sin. And instead of giving us what we deserve for that, God has given us himself. Jesus, the son of God, became a man, lived a perfect life that we couldn't do, that we didn't do. And yet he willingly took what we deserve so that we might live, so that we might be free, that we might be healed, that we might be reconciled and restored to God. He's what the whole Bible's about. Everything points to him. That's why we go through the Ten Commandments last summer. And what do we talk about? Jesus. We go through Hosea last fall. Who does that point to? Jesus. And we're going through Acts now. And who are we talking about right now? Jesus. Right? That's what it's about. 
It's all about him and what he has done. How God is redeeming his people through him. God breaking through to save his people. To save all of them. No matter the depth of their sin and depravity, his blood is sufficient to redeem and to restore. If only they will believe in him. If only you will believe in him. And he's not the Messiah that anyone expected. And he's often not the Messiah that we imagine him to be. He came to suffer. He came to experience injustice. All of these things we've experienced and know from living in a fallen world, he can relate. He can sympathize with us in all our weaknesses. He understands what you're going through. All the way. It's not foreign to him. He gets us. That's the $100 million ad campaign going on right now. If you haven't seen commercials, you'll see one or two during the Super Bowl coming up. I don't know that I agree with the perspective they might put on some things or everything on their website. Um, But I agree with that message. Jesus gets us. He doesn't say, what are you doing? Why are you screwing it up? Do better. He understands where we are. He understands what we're going through. He has been tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. And then he took our sin. That we might be healed. And he's gentle with us. He's kind. As a bruised reed, he will not break. He doesn't kick you while you're down. He lifts you up. A flickering flame he does not quench. He protects it that it might reignite and burn. So does the unit get included? Look at verses 36 to 38. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now we could spend the next couple hours here talking about baptism and what this passage does and doesn't teach about it. But I think we'd be getting uh, lost in the weeds and missing the point a little bit if we did that. But I would be more than happy to get together with you and talk about that. And I, I actually mean that, so shoot me an email. I love talking about this stuff. But with what we do see, apparently Philip mentioned baptism in his telling the good news about Jesus, right? We don't know how long the conversation was, uh, maybe hours. They're riding along on the road. Oxen don't go too fast. So it's a guess, but I would guess that it's along the lines of what Peter said in Acts 2, right? The appropriate response to hearing the gospel repent and be baptized. And I think that's what happened here. He asked for baptism because he believes in Jesus and turns from his sin. He wants to be identified with the Savior. 
And here's why I think baptism is such a big deal for the eunuch. Why this is what he wants. Why he doesn't want to delay or be prevented, but to do it as soon as possible. As soon as he sees water. Right? Remember what we said about eunuchs earlier. Always on the fringes. Always an outsider. Outside of the religious worship. Um, but with this promise of inclusion... But now, in Jesus, in the gospel, he is offered the sign of the covenant. He's offered full inclusion into what God is doing. What was circumcision in the Old Testament, but is baptism in the New, the sign and seal of being engrafted into God's people, of being engrafted into Christ, of becoming a member of God's covenant community of being united to him, the sign and seal of his full inclusion. He can't wait. He's been rejected that for who knows how long. He was prevented before, but what can prevent him now? Nothing. Where he was excluded before, now through faith in Christ, he is included. That promise has been realized. It has been fulfilled. And as Philip is whisked away by the Spirit to continue proclaiming the gospel, the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. Do you know this joy? The joy of full belonging? Of being completely known? Down in the depths of your soul, and yet completely loved. With no secret or sin to keep you at arm's length. That can be yours in Christ. If only you will believe in him.